and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, supported this week by Akeep and their UK distributor, Zebra. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I'm heading to Bramham Horse Trials this week. It'll be great to be back at that event, which always draws such a strong local crowd. And I'm looking forward to seeing some great action across the three four-star classes up in Yorkshire. Plus, of course, it's the first time that the BE80 National Championships have run at Bramham, so it'll be fun to see those riders too. Our interview this week is with Ros Cantor. She talks about Lordship Scraffalo, the 10-year-old horse on whom she recently finished second at Badminton. Yeah, he's got kind of some slightly odd character traits, but then when it comes to a competition, he is one of the easiest I've ever had to to compete. He really kind of settles to the job and absolutely loves it. I'll also be chatting to our news desk about a cash injection for eventing, gene editing and the fit of horses' bits. Finally, our vets, Rick Farr from Farr and Percy Equine and Andy Fisk-Jackson from the Royal Veterinary College will talk about the dangers of needles in veterinary life. My heart was pounding out of my chest, genuinely thinking, that's it, curtains, game over, you're done. So pull down your stirrups and let's get going. I'm delighted to be joined now by our guest on this week's show. She's the reigning world champion and the recent badminton runner-up. It is, of course, Ros Cantor. Hi, Ros. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you very much. Oh, well, it's nice to have you back. I know we had you on in the autumn last year, but we thought that we should catch up with you again after your second place at badminton with Lordship Graffalo, Walter, as he's known at home. I know he won himself a lot of new fans over that week at badminton, so people would love to hear a bit more about him from you. He's a British bred horse and you know his family very well. Can you start by sort of explaining that breeding connection to us, Ros, and how he came to you? Yeah, so he is related half-sister to, um, sorry, half-brother to Pencos Crown Jewel. Um, so I started riding Pencos Crown Jewel when she was a, a three-year-old for her owners, Annie Macon and Kate James. They had bought her as a foal from Penny Wallace, who has been heavily involved in the breeding side of both those horses. And so then Walter came to me as a three-year-old because I then got to know Penny because she was um, following Pencos Crown Jewel's progress. So he came to me to be broken in and um, he was for sale. So I fortunately had an owner, um, Michelle Saul, who owns him now, looking at the time. So she kindly bought him for me. And he's quite a character. I know that, that you sort of said at Babington, oh, that's just Walter's way about some of the funny things that he does. What's, what's he like as a, as a personality? Yeah, um, he's a very lovable chap, but um, he can be quite hard work at times on the floor. He's uh, fairly untrainable and um, he just kind of does what Walter wants to do. He licks things, he chews things, he nibbles things. When you try and put the bridle on, the reins are always in his mouth, the throat lashes in his mouth. He kind of walks into you sometimes, um, things like that. He's just just quite interesting character like that. He's very self-confident. Um, he can be very lazy to ride equally out of the blue. He can be very sharp and throw a very big buck. So, um, yeah, he's got kind of some slightly odd character traits. But then when it comes to a competition, he is one of the easiest I've ever had to to compete. He really kind of settles to the job and absolutely loves it. 
<laughs> well, I guess that's the right way around to have a horse that's uh, got interesting character on the on the on the ground, but but at competitions, he knows when to when to pull it out of the bag. And I found it really interesting when we were talking at Babington that you said that this is the first time you've actually ridden at Babington or Burley on a horse other than All Star B. I think you know we all think you're the world champion. You must have ridden lots of horses, but you're actually relatively inexperienced at those British five stars. Of course, you took All-Star B, Albie to Badminton as well this year alongside Walter. Just tell us how did you sort of feel in the build-up to Badminton going in with those two horses, one who you know so well, who's so experienced, and one who is coming into his first five star? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a new experience for me. I have never competed two horses at the five star level either. So, um it would be it was the first time i knew i would be going out on course without having watched anybody else and with the potential for you know being pulled out the hat first to go so um that that always makes it a little bit different and then yeah you know i've never tackled a badminton or a burley on any other horse in all star b and he's obviously such a scopy big horse that um i was always very confident with albie that i knew he'd jump the size and height of the fences quite easily so it's definitely an unknown going in on a different horse. But Walter is uh, probably the next best thing to Albie in terms of scope and everything else. So I was, you know, I wouldn't have taken him if I didn't think that he was going to be a five-star horse and a five-star horse at the Babington and Burley. So um, I hoped that he would enjoy the experience. I never quite imagined how much he would enjoy it and how much... um, he was going to be able to pull off his you know best performances in each phase like he did at an occasion like that but yeah so there were lots lots of new experiences but um you know it it was good fun and it was probably also the first time I'd ridden with a with an owner as well really because Caroline Moore owns half of All-Star B but she's a trainer a mentor a friend more than she is the owner of Albie so that was a new experience as well but um, we we all had a great time and Michelle Walters owner is a fantastic supporter of mine and you know a great friend of Caroline's too so we had a great week. Mm. And you had All-Star B first in the draw and Walter at the end and obviously the beginning of Cross Country Day at Badminton was quite eventful. Just tell us a little about about that experience of riding two horses. Did you learn things from from riding or study from riding Albie that you were able to take forward into your ride with Walter or because they're very different horses was that not really the case? Um, There there was the odd thing but actually um, I came back on Albie um I did watch a few other people go around because I did a bit of commentary and I'm not sure I learned any more than I I still rode Walter I think to the plan that I had walked the course with so from that point of view I think nothing changed too much there was the odd fence um the the brush to the ditch to the little skinny down the slope that I wasn't sure with Albie whether it would ride on two or three and he kind of chipped a third in and then by the time it got to Walter, I knew that I would then definitely ride for the three on Walter. So I gave him a slightly more comfortable experience. But other than that, I don't think anything really changed in my mind as how I was going to ride anything. Mm. Coming out of badminton, are they both are they both looking well and have they had a bit of a holiday now? Yeah, they both just looked fantastic, actually, even the day after, um, particularly Walter. I mean, I took a picture of him in the field eating grass and 
you wouldn't have known he'd just been around a five star. You couldn't see a rib or anything. He was completely relaxed, um, <laughs> which is him all over. But they both uh, started hacking this week. Yeah, so they had kind of uh, nearly three weeks off and they will have a couple of weeks doing that. And then after Bramham, we'll start to pick them up and and uh, make new plans for them. Mm. Do you have a feel for where they might be sort of aimed to come back to competition or is that sort of just all in the mix and in discussion at the moment? Uh, yeah, very much in discussion at the moment. Um, no real set plans other than, you know, where they might try and aim for in the autumn. Um, but we haven't kind of got as far as planning how they're going to get there yet. Um, I think this is such a busy time of year, uh, just trying to survive the days with all the other horses. And then, yeah, kind of Bramham seem. I feel like Bramham is the kind of end of the first half of the season. That's what it feels like of Ames. So we tend to get that done and then sit down and work back from our end of season aims and work out a plan for all the horses from there. Yeah. And presumably, I I don't want to ask you anything that you're not allowed to answer, but at this stage, you're also waiting to hear potentially from the British team hierarchy about where they might want to see your horses next, thinking about end of season aims. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, there's absolutely no hurry, but hopefully um, in the next few weeks, uh, once Bramham and Lemoulin are over, they'll pull up a long list and then we can uh, plan a lot more from there. Yeah, for sure. Well, talking of Bramham and Lemoulin, let's chat a bit about those events that are coming up. This will be coming out during Bramham and you have a couple of horses there, Roz, a busy few days. Give us a rundown on your, your lineup of horses for Bramham. Yeah, so I've got Pencos Crown Jewel. So Walter's half-sister, she's competing in the four-star long at Bramham. She did Bicton five-star last year and Bicton four-star long. So um, she's kind of fairly ready to go out and hopefully try and be competitive there. She's a great a great little horse, really competitive. Um, lots of fun to ride, um, quite, quite little, which suits me. She wouldn't be quite such a, a big mover in the dressage, but she really knows her job. So hopefully we can go out and have some fun with her. And then I've got Rahi Royal Diamond, also in the four-star long. He went double clear and went well at Blenheim last year in the four-star long. So again, kind of hoping to start to be competitive with him. He's quite a big horse for me and uh, big striding and quite strong. So sometimes uh, I waste a bit of time cross country, but um, he's been on good form this year. And then I've got Isalot DHI in the four-star short. He's a, a real up-and-coming horse for me. One I'm extremely excited about for the future. Um, he's had some great results, but um, he's quite a sharp horse. He's quite a spooky horse. So at the moment, we're just trying to put the building blocks in for the future, really. I, I think a lot of him, I think there's some really big results to come from him in the future, whether we're quite ready to produce that at the four-star stage right now this year. Um, I'm not sure, but um, yeah, it's all, all about building building for him, really. Mm. Oh, well, as I say, we'll be we'll be in the midst of Bramham when we release this interview. So it'll be good to see how those horses go there. And that's, of course, followed very swiftly by Le Moulin, the five-star in Germany. You're not actually going to that event this year, Ros, but you've had two very good spends there in the past with Zen Shira. You finished third in 2018, ninth in 2017. Tell us a bit about that competition. What are your first memories of going to Le Moulin? Presumably that was in 2017. That was the first time you went there? Yes, it was. Yeah. And I went with Zenshira, who um, really is 
remains my pride and joy. I absolutely adore the horse. He's now retired from eventing, but I enjoy riding him at home when I've got time and doing some dressage on him. So um, we went there really off the back of going well at badminton with All Star B. It was the year that really um, I first kind of propelled onto the slightly bigger stage and started to get some results at that level. Then Shearer, we chose, we decided never to take to the badminton and burleys. He was a little horse without much blood. Um, we decided he'd be more specialist at, at those kind of events. And uh, we just had a great time. Um, my mum kind of shares him with me and, and owns him with me. So she always comes and grooms for me at those events with him. So it, it's always a bit of a, a family occasion. And, um, you know, we were always very proud of Zenshira every time he went round an event like that. Yeah, and he has a great record because not only those uh, couple of good results at Lemoulin, but uh, l- lots of lots of finishes in the placings at Per as well. And as you say, you really placed him at those competitions that um, that that really suited him as a as, as a little horse who was a, who was a bit less less blood. But lovely to see that you were able to do that with with that horse. Remind us about his background and and story. As you say, he's a really special little horse to you, and and one one of the first ones to really bring you up the levels, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Um, I When I worked for Judy Bradwell, um, before I set up on my own, I went and did a couple of weeks working for Jan Grave in Holland and just, just to go to one of the yard really and get some experience. And Alfie was the first horse that I was put on there um, to see how I rode, basically. And he had been in the last, the previous few months to when I arrived, he'd been carriage driving with Jan. That was Jan's kind of hobby. And Alfie wasn't deemed um, talented enough as a show jumper, which is what they tended to breed at that time. And so they'd put him in the carriage and they were hoping to sell him to America to be a carriage horse until I came along. And I rode him every day because, um, you know, they needed horses for me to have a ride on, really. And um, he persuaded me at the end of the two weeks that I might want to buy him. Um, I was less sure because he hadn't shown a lot of talent over a show jump but um Jan very kindly um sold him to me for a very reasonable amount of money and I thought he was kind of a six-year-old bay gelding that had a pretty head so I thought I might do a few 100s on him and move him on and I probably wouldn't lose money on him so we we took a gamble and I just ended up having lots of fun on him that summer one of my other horses wasn't going very well so we ended up keeping him a bit longer and you know the rest is history really he ended up staying because we all loved him he was quite neurotic as a young horse um very tense in the dressage and um he's always been well known by all the riders and the grooms because he has an extremely loud whinny and he uses it on a lot of occasions so he got quite well known for being loud and annoying but he just kept on just kept on going really and he just did everything with a smile on his face and you know before we knew it I kind of got up to four star short with him and he, and I got selected onto a Nations Cup team and he really kick-started my career in that way. We did three Nations Cups in a row that year. We were, um, you know, kind of quite well valued as part of the team, I think. And then unfortunately he sustained an injury and really, it, it really knocked me for six because I thought he was going to be the horse that would take me around my first five star. And thankfully at the time, um, Albie had just, just come into my life then and so he was able to take over a little bit and we gave Alfie lots of time and he came back up and 
and then Alfie and I will be around together for the next few years at Five Star. So he is very special. Um, he's just always a glass, glass half full person. He doesn't have a bad day. He's always happy at home. He happily, at the age of 18 now, trots around the school with anybody on and enjoys being ridden. So that's why I think we all love him so much. Well, that's great. And it's really interesting you mentioned that um, Yangi Grieve, Judy Brabwell connection, Rose. And as soon as you said that, I, I just typed into my sort of search, Yang Grieve, and loads of uh, old documents came up from when I interviewed Judy and then reports and so on. And was looking at the horses that have sort of come into, into Britain through that connection. I know that Kekatinka was one of them who won at sort of one star, now two star level with you and then went to the prices and was a championship horse for Tim and, and then went to the Japanese and I don't think ran to championship, but was a sort of back up horse for for one of the Japanese riders for championships but lots of good horses have, have come out of Jan's yard haven't they yeah and, and I think continue to do so actually yeah he's still um, very much in the game I think and yeah I mean he he's he's a vet himself he has huge amounts of knowledge and and they've bred quite a lot of thoroughbred into their horses so with the connection of Judy as well and all the horses I rode for Judy um, when I worked for her for four years, all the young horses all pretty much came through Yam, um, and they they had a good partnership together, bringing horses over, and then and then generally they got sold on. But um, yeah, he has a great great eye for a horse and and great knowledge, and he's always there. Even now, if I want to pick up the phone and ask him a question, he would he would always be happy to chat. So so yeah, he's you know little Alfie was was really really kickstarted my career. Yeah. Oh, well, it's lovely to hear that and to hear that he's uh, happy and well in his retirement with you as well. That's just really good to hear. Well, thank you so much, Roz. I know it's a, a busy time for you, as we say, building up to more three days and you've got your daughter Ziggy to be running around after as well. But thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today. Thank you very much. I'm joined now by all three members of our news team. So first up, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? Yeah, I'm all good, thank you. All very lovely to, to come back to work after such a nice long weekend, uh, toasting the Queen copiously, uh, copious amounts of Prosecco and lots of horsey things also in Her Majesty Donna. And yeah. it's all good. <laughs> it was strange to get that long weekend, wasn't it? Because we're mm. so unused to it because we normally work bank holiday Mondays because that's our press day. So it, it kind of felt like what normal people do who don't yeah. work for horse and hand. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was lovely. I was puppy sitting at my parents on Saturday and Sunday. So uh, yeah, oh. it was a, I had a nice nice two days getting to play with a puppy so that was very enjoyable we also have with us today lucy elder our senior news writer how's it going with you lucy i'm very well thank you pippa i've also been toasting the queen this weekend <laughs> um and like you said four days off it felt such a treat yeah it was it was very nice i did say at the end of friday i was a bit like oh i feel like i've had my weekend now there's another whole one to come it was uh, <laughs> it was great and we also have with us our other senior news writer becky murray how about you becky were you toasting the queen in scotland Oh, yes. <laughs> and just lots of time with my horse. I think she was wondering where I developed all the spare time from. So and lots of sunshine. But I feel quite bad saying that because I understand mm. it wasn't quite as nice in elsewhere in the UK. It was actually better than forecast. Like the, It was nice here on Thursday and then the forecast for the weekend was quite wet. But in the end, it really wasn't that bad at all. I mean, I managed to ride and uh, play in the garden with the dog and take her for some little walks and I didn't get wet. So it wasn't too bad. And Eleanor, before we all got into the Jubilee weekend, you were at a launch at the beginning of last week, which was celebrating some really exciting news in eventing. Tell us about that. What was what was the headline there? 
Well, the, the headline is, is a massive one. It's a, a seven-figure financial investment into British eventing, which is just absolutely amazing. You know, it's the biggest single investment into uh, an equestrian Olympic governing body. And yeah, it's just absolutely massive news. Went up to Cornbury House for where they hold the horse trials for the launch, which is absolutely stunning. Hadn't been there before. Um, and yeah, the, the idea is it's called the Howden Way. And that's named after the investor, David Howden, uh, who's president of, of Cornbury Horse Trials and also founder and, and chief executive of Howden, the insurers. And it's basically the aim is to identify and develop human and equine talent. Mm. And so in more detail, how will the money be used? So, so one thing that, um, as, as Mr. Howden said, you know, he's got a passion for eventing. We're at the top of the world here in Britain. And, and how can he sort of widen access to that and improve the, the horses and riders that are in it? So there will be um, this regional training. And that's ac accessible to all members of BE, including the pay-as-you-go competitors. It'll be regional. They'll be able to have access, be able to access online support and these regular regional training sessions, which will be subsidised. And then the coaches of those regional uh, sessions will be able to identify people who aged between 14 and 28 who can go on to the the talent pathway and talented young horses can go on to the equine pathway so there'll be uh training and and age specific british venting leagues well that's really interesting i don't think i'm going to be on any talent pathways but <laughs> I definitely uh, i do miss the training that be used to organize so if something like that can come back that would be great for everybody up and down the levels and um I think there were some really interesting discussions at the launch too about how the sport needs to change but to keep its integrity. Give us a, a bit of a quick overview on that, those conversations that happened. Yeah, so there, and I think there's been a lot of talk about this in, in not only a lot of horse sports but also a lot of other sports. So how do you sort of manage risk of a risk sport but also uh, uh, keep the integrity of the sport? And um, one thing uh, Mr Howden said <laughs> was that we've got to have the maximum training and people being as safe as possible but without changing the sport or we'll all end up playing tiddlywinks <laughs> he said which uh, was a very good point but yeah it's the and, and um jane holdness rodham who was there in the audience was saying that you know one of the biggest handicaps at the moment is health and safety she said she's spoken to a couple of riders uh, just this year who have never done a dressage test on grass and so you know it's about yeah increasing the safety and training of people to be able to do a good job safely Mm. Jane, of course, hugely experienced event rider who was an Olympic gold medalist. She's a former chair of BE and so on. So interesting to hear her views from that launch as well. Thank you, Eleanor. Lucy, you have been writing this week about a parliamentary bill that was outlined in the Queen's speech last month. What's this all about? I have. Well, I mean, to be specific, I've been writing about two things this week that fall under that kind of same umbrella. The first is the bill, which essentially in a nutshell it would pave the way for genetically edited plants and animals to be grown and raised commercially in England. That's called the Genetic Technology and then in brackets Precision Breeding Bill and you'll likely be hearing much more about that as it makes its way through Parliament. It was introduced like you said in the Queen's speech on the 10th of May uh, where it had it and it's had its first reading and it's uh, going to have its second reading in Parliament on 14th of June and when I talk about readings that's part of the early stages of the bill goes through as part of the lawmaking process and now I was in Westminster as in 
the place in London, not Parliament itself, on 11th of May for the Animal Welfare Foundation Forum. And one of the debates on the timetable was the gene editing debate, uh, which asked the question, does gene editing compromise welfare? Um, so if you like, the fact that it was mentioned in the Queen's speech, just a short hop across the square the day before was kind of a timely backdrop to this non-political but ethical debate, which is why I've combined the two uh, in, in this week's news story. Mm, okay, so give us a rundown of the arguments on each side. First of all, tell us what there is in favour of gene editing. Yes, so like you said, there were leading experts on both sides. It was a really cracking debate, actually. And I don't think a real consensus was really found, which is even more interesting, especially as we were talking about just then. We're going to be hearing a lot more about it this summer. Uh, so speaking in favour, Professor Med Madeline Campbell and Professor Bruce Whitelaw were on that side. And to sum up very briefly, some of the arguments included the opportunity that there is here to make a positive welfare difference, not just to one animal, but for generations to come. So things like being able to remove certain hereditary diseases, for example, in one generation and another example of potentially possible links to preventing certain fractures in horses. Now, humans have been selectively breeding animals for and plants really for millennia. And this is another tool in that toolkit. But instead of it taking generations and generations of chance, it's narrowing it down that time frame, taking elements of chance away so you can be really selective about it. And the point was made that given we have these tools, is there not an ethical imperative that we should be using them to improve welfare for now and the future? And um, Professor Whitelaw also made the point that it's not the technology itself that is good or bad, but how humans choose to use it. And there's opportunity here for it to be used for good. Okay, that's interesting. And what about those who are against gene editing? What are, what are sort of the arguments on the other side of the debate? So concerns were raised about how quickly changes can be made and whether this is technology for human benefit rather than animal benefit and where that line falls. So Matt Leach, who's a lecturer in laboratory animal welfare at the University of Newcastle and Penny Hawkins of the RSPCA were speaking against it. And Dr Leach argued that methods have the potential to compromise animal welfare faster and more severely than anything that has come before. Uh, Dr Hawkins' arguments also included concerns that it could be used to solve human problems and perpetuate poor welfare practices such as overstocking when there are solutions already available such as better husbandry. So, And there were quite a lot more arguments on both sides as well. There was such a lot to think about. And just to give another kind of flavour of some of the other general points raised within the debate itself rather than for and against were the importance of having a robust monitoring system and also the subject of how and where to draw the line between gene editing for improved welfare and the unacceptable gene doping for performance how you monitor that where do you draw the line also at what point gene editing becomes a one health benefit where we talk about one health which improves you know lives of animals and by association by association the humans who are caring for them so it is a huge topic and I'm actually really, really interested to see what comes out more this summer as it's sort of talked about more widely. It's something that does pop up from time to time, but I think there's going to be a real focus on it over the next few months. Mm, really interesting one. And we'll look forward to hearing more about that as, as the conversations develop. Thank you, Lucy. Becky, you've been writing about the fit of horses bits this week and some new research. Who carried out that and what did they find? 
Well, this is a study done by researchers from, from the University of Helsinki in Finland. They were looking at oral dimensions in horses, in horses and ponies um, across a variety of types and ages. So we had warm bloods in there, Connemaras, cobs. And of the horses looked at, 465 wore bits regularly. And basically the owners brought along the bit they would usually wear for this oral examination. Now, of this group, just over 25% were found to actually be wearing a bit that didn't fit properly. And it might have been either too short or too long. And some of the other findings included that uh, a double jointed snaffle was the most common mouthpiece used and a loose ring was the most common cheek type. Hmm, okay, interesting. And I think that one of the most interesting aspects was in the difference between mares and geldings mouths. Tell us a bit more about that. So the researchers found that the oral dimensions were significantly smaller in mares than geldings, and they also had less tongue space. The researchers said owners may be un unaware of the relationship between oral dimensions and sex when selecting a bit size. And I've owned geldings and mares and have to confess this wasn't something I was aware of. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, nothing I've heard about previously either. And you also spoke to Jill Batt. She is a bit fitting specialist and founder of Horsebit Advice. She made a couple of interesting comments, I thought, in, in your story, offering some advice for owners around bit fitting. What did she say? Um, well, first, actually, Jill mentioned she thought this study was really interesting and it really backed up some of the things that, you know, she sees. And that she said um, that around 50% of the horses she sees might have an incorrect fitting bit. But she did say owners are willing to learn and, you know, people want to do the best by their horse, whether that's a top competition horse or a horse used for hacking. She recommends that horses are seen around every six months by a bit fitter and that um, horses it can change over um, as horses get older. So whether, you know, you've got an older horse, it doesn't mean you shouldn't then get their bit looked at. So I think it's, you know, anything we can do to make our horses more comfortable is only a positive thing. Mm, definitely. As you say, it's not something that's ever really been on my radar to have a professional fit my horse's bits, but um, it can only be a positive for, for horses' welfare and performance. Thank you very much, Becky, and to Lucy and Eleanor for joining us today too. This week's podcast is supported by Akeep and their UK distributor, Zebra. Akeep is a brand that leads the way in equestrian products. They have a vast range of saddles, bridles and leatherwork, using only the finest materials and utilising the latest technology. Akeep and Zebra would like to say a huge congratulations to Akeep rider Ros Cantor, the badminton runner-up on Lordship's Graffalo. So it's time for our vets now. Over to you, Rick. Hi, my name's Rick. I'm one of the vets at Farm Persie Equine, and I've got Andy Fitzjackson, one of the surgeons at the RVC, with me. And we're just uh, carrying on having a little bit of a chat about uh, the day-to-day -day life of a vet, uh, the sort of things we encounter, and the sort of things that you probably don't actually realise that go on uh, behind the scenes. So, uh, Andy, you're still with us, and I am indeed. Thanks, Rick. Hello, everyone. Perfect. Um, I've got a, a, a lovely little story in a minute, a little teaser well, of when I thought I was going to die, genuinely. <laughs> um, well, I think maybe mine's a bit more lighthearted, so I think we should get yours out of the way, because I wouldn't be worrying now about you know, how close you came. It's one of those things when everyone's had that time when they feel that their heart's going to pound out their chest. 
sadly, we do have to say goodbye to a lot of our patients. And there's a couple of drugs that we have to use in order to do that. And we're always very careful with drugs, but sometimes you get back flushing um, or spraying out of some drugs, particularly out of glass bottles. And there's one particular drug that we use as a euthanized agent. I won't actually name it, but um, it is very effective at what it does. So there's me um, drawing up this thing. Now, it's in a glass bottle. And occasionally, particularly when this drug gets a bit cold, it's a bit like treacle. So sometimes it doesn't pull out very easily. So you try to either warm it up. Or another alternative is to put a little bit of air into the gas into the glass bottle to make sure that it's easier to draw out. Anyway, when you do inject this drug, it's designed to stop the heart. Now, like a plonker here, when I was first qualified, um, put a little bit of air into this one bottle and it sprays out. Now, there are some drugs that you don't want to spray, and this one is where you don't want to spray anywhere near your mouth or your face or anything like that. But this drug sprayed out, and there must have only been a couple of mil that sprayed directly into my face. There's me patting it and trying to get rid of it. And a load of it goes onto my lips and into my eyes. Now, panic, absolute, unadulterated panic sets in, in my head, going, I know what this drug can do. The rate of which my heart shot up for the, probably about the next 20 minutes, I had to sit down for 15 of those. My heart was pounding out of my chest, genuinely thinking, that's it, curtains, game over, you're done. And that yeah. time to exit. And it does genuinely happen. I mean, there are some, the one particular drug that I used, it would probably not have done that anyway in the volumes that struck. But there, we do have some drugs on the uh, on our list that definitely can. Well, you don't, the trouble is you panic because you're aware of the fact that you're kind of on your own. You, you almost yeah. let you tell the mm. look, if I just, you know, how seriously should you take it? That's the bottom line. You kind of, you know, you're thinking, well, I know this has happened. I know if I pass out, I'm no good to anyone. And, you know, obviously I need to go to hospital, um, mm. but do I need to take it that seriously? Am I just going to be okay? Um, oh, I practically and, yeah. had to dump my head in a bucket of water and just get the hose, just washing yeah. my face off again and again and again. All the while, trying to be sensitive to the situation of what you're actually oh, there in the first place. Oh, my word. <laughs> and then the, the owner's looking around at you going, are you all right? And you're genuinely thinking, right, I don't want to panic you, but internally... I'm yeah. like that that duck on or whatever on water. My legs are going like <laughs> the a rate of knots underneath, but outside I have to appear calm. But I just need to sit down on this one because I genuinely think that's it. It's curtains mm. for me. It, I know one of the drugs that we used to use uh, for such things, um, they still use in, in, in wildlife uh, practice. Mm. And um, I went to um, a zoo to deal with a rhino, uh, of all things, that had a sore foot. And when, when you do a lot of zoo medicine modern animal medicine um you don't really have the options we'll bring it back in a couple of days and we'll have another look at him you know <laughs> i'll look at it again in five ten days time you know it's kind of like well there and then you you know you, you need to do whatever you're going to do in one hit um because mm. you know this was a a three-ton rhino and he probably wasn't going to just come along and lift his foot up for me to have a, have a look at his um, front leg his right front and uh anyway so we had we we went there and we give this drug which um is is we only use now um in in zoo animals anyway this this rhino um we didn't find an awful lot it had a bit of underrun horn and a few things in its foot and i said well i think that's probably it and the 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 keepers there said, well we normally put a cast on just to protect it because you know that's um that's all you know we need some protection mm -hmm. from the mud i thought it's a bit overkill probably but well why not 
anyway, so I put this cast on and um, it also got some car tires, sort of bits of, uh, I don't know, about uh, 12 inch lengths of car tire cut up, which you sort of also include in the cast to sort of try and give it some cushioning. Anyway, so we gave this reversal agent uh, and we'll, it's pretty quick. So you get everything out of this sort of little kind of stall we're in well, and uh, we all sort of ran out and then you hear this this massive rhino waking up and um, we all sort of, we're all outside, obviously safely behind the um, the bars of the pen. And mm. eventually this, um, after a bit of kerfuffle, you could hear the rhino appears at the door. And, it, and let's just say he ain't happy. You know, something's <laughs> happened to him and he's not a happy chappy. And he stands and he's snorting and everything else. And then suddenly just kind of, and I can't describe, he, he, he picks up his foot and lifts it and looks and sniffing at the cast. And he's obviously mm. looking at this thing that's on him and in the injustice, the, in, the insult. And basically he then just, and I can't imagine what kind of power on the concrete floor, just smashes it as hard as he can, stamping his front foot with the cast on, on this concrete floor. He's a three-ton male rhino. Well, I'm proud to say the cast did survive three stamps before eventually <laughs> this thing just exploded and was just, you know, that was the end of that cast. But of course it had a bandage on another cast, mm. uh, which which didn't wasn't going to just snap, of course. So he starts charging around the pen with this bandage oh, sort of wow. flailing behind him like some kind uh, of, which just seemed to <laughs> aggravate him even more. Uh, and uh, eventually, obviously, well, the thing came off. But uh, uh, but yeah, that was um, another sort of uh, interesting experience. But you never know what's around the corner. It can be quite alarming, that's for sure. But it is. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think I've I've managed at, at university. You're kind of you're injected with all sorts of things. Uh, you, you're vaccinated against a list as long as your arm when you're a student. And you, uh, to be honest, now I'm not surprised with the amount of stuff that you come into contact with. Mm. And then I I dread to think how many times I've accidentally been injected with vaccines and all sorts mm. like that and everyone does it you put a needle in your pocket you're in a rush something happens um yeah. you're leaving it it's like i i had a colleague that um was pulled up at a petrol station actually and uh one person came out from the petrol station actually saying that a complaint had been put about it about a concern and everything because when you opened up the front door and a uh, passerby had walked as they were filling up their car walked in and looked into their car and there's needles and syringes all over the front <laughs> of the car it's kind of like yeah sometimes you just outload your pockets or yeah. you, normally you outload your pockets into your washing machine and the amount of times my washing machine is broken as a result of some daft thing falling out of my pocket and ruining it but um yeah uh, I got one last thing about injections, which is when I was in again in, again in my first job, and I suppose you're going to have much more, you know, when you first start, because hopefully you do learn and 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 you know avoid these situations. But I was um, doing uh, TB testing um, down in Somerset. It's quite a lot of uh, tuberculosis, unfortunately, uh, amongst the cattle population, and um, a lot of testing, uh, and it involves injecting two two injections in the neck of a a, a cow or calf. And uh, some of the big cars are less easy to have yeah, to, to restrain. And this, this, we managed to do all the others in this pen. It was a, um, I think it would have been again about a sort of five, six month old car. And anyway, the, the farmer um, managed to get hold of this last calf. And um, my mom, and you inject with these the, the little mini guns, if you like, um, <laughs> with needles, you know, and so they're quite easy to inject. I remember them fondly. Pistol things almost mm. that, that yep. you know, deliver a single dose. Anyway, so the farmer um, held this calf. And I don't know why he did this, but and I just assumed, you know, he was going to hold it, I inject, and then, then he'd let go. But no, he decided to let go just as I'm coming forward with these two guns. And as he came back, he sort of flailed his arms up in some kind of, there's your patient. Unfortunately, flailed his arm right literally 
into the two needles. Oh. <laughs> and so and it delivers the pressure of him pushing back, it delivers the, the so basically, um yeah, I, I, I You injected the client. I injected him. <laughs> and um honestly I was like, Oh my gosh. And, and of course he was joking around, he said, Well you have to come and test me in three days' time and I'm more worried about, oh, what's gonna happen to him? So yes, you have to abroad it and go down there. He's absolutely fine, thankfully. But uh, yes, I, I, my I, my heart sang. I thought, like, oh my word, what's going to happen? He's going to have some anaphylactic reaction, and that's it. But very alarming. But um, yeah, needles—they get everywhere. They do. Sure. They definitely do. Well, we'll tell you what. What we'll do, we'll uh, we'll carry on this chat in the next podcast. But um, yeah. Uh, if you do ever walk past anyone and see a load of needles in the car, obviously, and look in the back of the car as well, see if it's a vet first. We'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Rick and Andy. Next week, our vets will be back to talk about some of the perks of the vet's life. We'll review Bramham Horse Trials, look at the rest of the week's news, and our interview will be with Irish show jumper Trevor Breen, talking about his memories of the Hickster Derby ahead of that competition in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you for listening to this week's Horse and Hound podcast, supported by Akeep and their UK distributor, Zebra. Talk to you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.